This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. Coming up on today's show, Canada's electoral system is certainly not ideal. We all know there are a number of issues and we hear about them all the time. We'll speak with Senator Peter Harder. What is going on over at Twitter? And as we get closer to Remembrance Day, a look at the Canadian medical contingent of the First World War. All right, going to continue our political conversation here. I think this is going to be... uh There's some really, really good ideas here. We were talking about the division in the United States, and a lot of you on the text line talking about John Fetterman. He's worse than Herschel Walker. No, he's not. No, he's not. Herschel Walker is as bad as it gets. Now, I'll grant you, uh, if I was the Democrats, there's no way I would have let Fetterman continue after he he, he suffered the stroke. They say he can do the job, and I think he's a fine guy and everything like that, but um, I think just in terms of his prospects of winning were greatly diminished and in the interest of his own health um, might it have been better to have him spend, you know, to take him out of this race. I don't know. I, I, I grant you not a great candidate, especially after the health scare for sure, but he's not, he's not Herschel Walker caliber, not in my mind. Anyway, we can disagree, not, not germane to our next conversation, but talking about how if Herschel Walker can get elected, then we know it's not about uh, a qualified candidate. It's about party. And that happens all the time. That happens all over the world, all of the time. And it's happening more and more in our country too, where we will elect some people that probably we wouldn't elect based on their merit, but we do it because of um, how divided we are. We're a country divided, we're a province divided, we're a continent divided. We are just divided politically. We have, we've fallen into a really dangerous situation, and we just talked about what's going on in the U.S. With, with, in our country, you see some of it, too, not quite as pronounced, obviously, but uh, the system is seen as unfair. It's, it's unresponsive to a good chunk of the country. We feel that in Alberta, right? Our faith in some of our democratic institutions is shaky or worse. We hear people talking about Bank of Canada, Supreme Court of Canada, the list goes on. It's just not working for all Canadians. So our next guest has some ideas on how to make it work a little better. Senator Peter Harder is with us, a former deputy minister for several federal departments, including foreign affairs. Senator, thank you for joining us. I appreciate your time today. Happy to be with you. Now, you recently wrote a piece that listeners can find on the TIE website, and in it you say that at least some of this dysfunction that we're seeing can be blamed basically on the way that our political system works. It sets us up for this, at least in recent elections. So that dysfunction, dysfunction within, you know, how we count our ballots basically has led to this chaos, right? Yeah, I think that uh, our our political system itself is not viewed as fully legitimate by so many Canadians. Look at our participation rates in, in elections. A look at our our, uh, our sense of frustration when uh, governments are formed with a small percentage of the popular vote. Uh, look at our party nomination processes, which are 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 often not very transparent, but rather opaque. Um, 
it's the system we've always had, though, Senator. And I understand what you're saying, and I, especially being somebody in Alberta, I know how much you know contention there is about the system and alienation. It's the same system we've always had, though. So, can we really say sorry, that's the reason up. it's so bad right now, Senator? I'm, can I'm you hear sorry, me? you're. Yeah, I, I couldn't hear your question. Oh, I apologize. I, I was just saying, um, I, I, being in Alberta, I, I, we know the alienation factor well, um, but we've always had it. We've always had this system. So um, uh, I understand what you're saying, but can it be just the system that's led to the division we're experiencing right now? Well, I think that the, the, the lack of confidence that the system is working for Canadians uh, gives us a sense of, of alienation and a lack of legitimization. What I'm seeking to do is to try to find ways that are constitutionally consistent uh, that would uh, energize Canadians uh, in the political process and yield a result w- with which we feel at least that there is greater confidence uh, in the outcome. So what do we need to do? You make three broad points and we can get into each of them, but let's start with First past the post, which we were told was going to be changed, electoral reform. How do we fix that and why? Well, my my bias is uh, for electoral reform uh, in the following sense. I think that we are too big a country and too vast a population uh, to um, have proportional representation at, at the national level. I think members of parliament should be attached to a constituency uh, in which uh, constituents know their member of parliament uh, and feel that they have elected their member of parliament. I do, though, think that a first-past-the-post system yields results where the outcome of which leads to governments with uh, very, uh, well, in the last election, 33% of the popular vote gets 47% of the seats. What I'm suggesting is that every constituency, the member of parliament, must win 50% plus one of the vote. Yeah. If they do not in the first round, there's a second round a week later in which the top two candidates in that riding are contesting for the, uh, for the final outcome. That would yield a parliament in which every member of parliament had at least 50% of the vote in the constituency that they're representing, and therefore a broader sense of legitimacy uh, in, in their uh, role in Ottawa. How does that work? Just the mechanics of it. There are systems that do that, right, that have you know, almost yeah. immediate runoffs. Yeah, the French have a runoff the week after, okay. uh, and I like that because it's very proximate to the election. The issues are still relevant, uh, and it does uh, lead to uh, a sense in which the result may not be what uh, what uh, some leaders would prefer, but it is one where uh, there is a legitimacy bestowed on the on the outcome that uh, that I think makes it easier. Uh, for the parliament to uh, uh, to reach uh, a consensus on a on a on a, a policy uh, set of of proposals going forward. Now, I happen to not like the French presidential system, but there but the parliamentary elections are something we could win we could learn from. And, and and you know the other point that you make about that, and I think it's interesting, is it expands it beyond the base. We we've got a a, a political system where you can win uh, just by you know. Uh, playing to the base, and that can be enough to get you in, even if you don't get the 50%. This forces a candidate to expand to a broader base. Exactly. And it forces, I think, moderation in in, um, uh, the election campaign itself. 
you're, you're not just appealing to your base, but you're trying to get to a broader set of voters uh, that are beyond your base. And uh, that's really what governing is all about. Okay, um, another one. And mandatory voting. I don't know if I agree with you on this one, so I want to hear you out. How does that help? Doesn't that just create more disengaged, uninformed voters? We have enough. I mean, why do we want to force people to vote if they don't really know what they're voting for? Well, that's a legitimate point of view. My my uh, preference is a mandatory system like Australia has, uh, only in the sense that it confers in every citizen the obligation of citizenship, uh, the the obligation to know about the uh, party platforms and to cast a vote. Uh, it, it's not a it's not a panacea at all, but it it reminds us all that uh, we have an obligation as a citizen to participate in the electoral process. We have seen diminishing voter turnouts at the national level, at the provincial level, yep. uh, in in Ontario in the last election just a few weeks ago. Only 43% of the electorate voted. Uh, that that delegitimizes the outcome no matter what. Mm-hmm. Uh, even though uh, Pre- Premier Ford had a majority in the election, there's a sense that uh, with such a low participation rate, he doesn't have the the uh, authority that, a, that a, a premier or a prime minister with a broad mandate across the election electorate would yield. That's why I think this is a an innovation we could we should be considering um and i i understand the argument in terms of then then you've i mean everybody's on board they have to be on board so if you win a majority you've won a majority of everybody not just the people who bothered to vote i'm just wondering is there is there a way of encouraging more informed voting is there a way to do that can you mandate an informed electorate well look of the three options i uh, i or three uh, proposals i put forward i think by far the most important uh is the uh the runoff in the 50% yeah. plus 1 by constituency because that will encourage an informed electorate particularly if you've got a, a runoff right in the sense of uh the candidates are going to have to appeal yep. beyond their base and it's just not a a, a, a sort of a routine reflex of I, I've always voted blue or I've always voted purple, uh, uh, that you have to consider more broadly choices beyond your first choice. And I think that's that leads to a, a more informed elector. Um, your third point, your third suggestion, citizens should register their political leadings. Uh, either, they're either, I guess they would be liberal, they'd be NDP, they'd be conservative, or they would be independent. Why? What does that right. do? Well, we now have in Canada what's called a permanent voters list. Uh, so that we don't, uh, as we used to, have an enumer- enumeration every time the election is called. That, that, what I am suggesting is that even party nominations, remember, they're all funded uh, through various mechanisms of, of, uh, of public support, right? I mean, the, the donations are tax deductible. Uh, there's compensation in the electoral system. Not as much as there used to be, but there still is. But too often, parties... Uh, run nominations either at the constituency level or even leadership uh, contests that are all about uh, energizing a small yes. uh, a base. And what I'm suggesting is that uh, Canadians uh, be invited to to identify and participate in party politics or not uh, in a more transparent fashion, so that the the leadership of parties. Uh, can't uh, can't run nefarious processes uh, 
that aren't as transparent or as open as democracies require. That's a great point, and timely. I mean, if you take a look at what's going on in Alberta right now, we have a premier who hasn't been elected, and you know, it was all party politics, and I think the grand total was about 45,000 people that actually cast a ballot, or, or I might have those numbers wrong, but it was, you know, a tiny, tiny, like about 1% of the populace. So uh, having more people involved at the party level certainly would probably increase those numbers. Yeah, and, and you know, how many of those uh, uh, memberships that were sold in the few weeks of a leadership campaign were really about commitment to party? Right, yeah, yeah. Just wanted to have their voice heard in the... Uh, in the leadership race. A really interesting proposal, Senator. I appreciate you spending some time with us and talking through them today. We haven't talked much about Twitter, and we probably should, man. It's a scene these days, what's going on with Twitter. Uh, the $44 billion deal that made Elon Musk the owner of the massive social media platform just closed last week. Uh, and since then, all kinds of things have happened. And at the same time, some of the things that were supposed to happen haven't yet. I mean, suffice to say, it's been, well, it's been a little bit chaotic. We're going to chat with James McLeod, a Toronto-based writer and communications professional about this. Um, James, thanks for your time. I appreciate you joining us today. Oh, it's it's great to be here. Love to talk about the chaos. <laughs> yeah, how are you feeling about Twitter? It's It's a little frenetic. It's hard to keep up with everything that's happening around that platform right now, isn't it? Well, it's it's one of those things where I, I heard someone say that on the one hand, you kind of want to quit it, but on the other hand, it's a front row seat to the best circus in the world, so <laughs> how can you possibly look away? No, I think you're absolutely right, and I think for a lot of us, we're just sort of sitting back and watching, like, what's going to happen next? Because it's really tough. It, it seems to me, and I don't know, maybe I'm wrong, it seems to me Elon Musk is running Twitter based entirely on how he feels about each individual tweet that he happens to come across. I mean, it's, it's that granular. It, it it is, and and there's also this element where it's kind of like the guy who spends every single night getting drunk in the bar decides to buy the bar, <laughs> and and he's still getting drunk in it every single night, but he's got a lot of opinions about how the bar should be run, uh, and it's it's just like an absolute mess. Um, and, and it's like, it only stands to get a lot worse. A, a thing that's sort of lurking under the surface with all of this is the fact that he took on like $13 billion worth of debt to buy this thing and needs to make about a billion dollars worth of interest payments every year off the profits of Twitter. And Twitter is not profitable and he's scared away all the advertising and, it's it's just an absolute like total mess that you know who knows what's going to happen. We don't, and you talk about the revenue, and I think that's part of the reason that he's now decided he's going to go to the eight dollar check marks uh, for verified accounts. Uh, full disclosure: I'm verified, and no, Elon, I won't give you a penny to be verified. If you want to take my check mark, it's all yours. Just tell me where to send it; you can have it. Um, what's your take? There's some people out there, James, who say, you know what, you should actually be paying the people with the check marks because they're what make your platform interesting. <laughs> 
Well, and, and that is what's so interesting to me. Full disclosure, I am also verified. I also was paying six bucks a month for the Twitter Blue, oh, Blue. subscription because, I, I mean, I am an addict of this. I, I spend more time on Twitter than I spend on Netflix. I, I spend more time on Twitter than I spend on the Globe and Mail's website, and I subscribe to that. Like, I, I mean, some of it was just kind of quality of life improvements, and, and it, <laughs> it did make a certain amount of sense to me. But the the thing that I find so interesting about this and other sites is this aspect of, like, I post a lot of tweets on Twitter, and there is this real question of who is providing value here? Like, is Twitter providing me a service, or am I providing right. content to Twitter? And if they're demanding that we all pay up to keep using this, it sort of begs a real question about how social media works. You're absolutely right. And it also begs the question that you ask in the piece that you put together. Elon Musk can't leave. He's got $44 billion sunk into this. The rest of us, maybe it's time to say, why are we doing this anyway? If you think about it, and I spend a lot of time on Twitter, too, it's not a positive experience a lot of the time. No, it's not. Well, and, and like, I, I mean, to me, this goes back to, like, a bigger thing of, you know, like, 20 years ago, we started posting things online, status updates on Facebook, you know, MSN Messenger, uh, you know, sort of statuses, and uh, MySpace, and, and we've just developed a habit that when we have thoughts, we fling them out yes. onto the Internet, and companies make profits off of networks built around allowing us to do that. And I, I think there's a lot of people in recent years who have sort of gotten to a place where they're more comfortable talking in the group chat with their six or seven closest friends. And, you know, pulling back from that posting into the public space. And I, I sort of wonder if, if we're starting to maybe see a backlash that you know, why am I providing all this free content to Twitter? Why are journalists yeah. who never get paid a dime by Twitter posting updates live as they happen before they even file to the newspaper or to the TV station? So what's the, what are you thinking? Are you done? Are you leaving? Um, I, I mean, I'm an addict. I, <laughs> like, I, I'm, I'm the first one to it. And, and it's, it's like I, the thing I'm basically thinking about is I'm not going to be the guy to jump first. Yeah. But I'm definitely mulling this stuff over. R right now, if you want to know what's happening, if you want to know, uh, hear from the people and hear the jokes about whatever the most up-to-date, you know, breaking news story is, the thing that just happened, Twitter is the place yeah. where that happens. But, yeah, if it stops, like, I, if it goes away, I, I'm, I'm gone, too. Like, I'm not, how about you? Yeah, I'm like, I mean, I guess now TikTok is the thing. And I, I'm, I'm 51 years old. I'm not getting started with TikTok. Forget it. If Twitter goes, I go. I've already given up Facebook. I can't imagine myself chasing this much longer. I mean, there'll be something, though. It's social media is not going away, James. It's, it's such a part of our lives. I, well, but for how long? Like, yeah. it, it has been a part of our lives for, like, 20 years. I like that's that's not that long. <laughs> Good point. You, you lived a whole lot of your life before <laughs> you ever did a status update. The idea that we can't go back, I I, I don't know. I I think it could. 
and 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 TikTok is a really interesting one. I am on that uh, site, and I, I don't. I, I do post a little bit. Yeah. I don't understand why, but that <laughs> that company is losing money. They lost seven billion dollars last year. They are buying their way to growth, and given that they're controlled by a Chinese company, yeah. you've really got to ask yourself, what are they buying with that audience? I like. I'm not sure social media is a good business. People don't like Facebook. Twitter is in real trouble. I think all of this could kind of go away. That would be amazing. I think we'd all be better for it. I, I, part of me thinks that Twitter is just going to. Elon Musk is going to recognize that. You know, you're right. You're absolutely right. Being the guy who sits and drinks in the bar is probably not the best guy to own the bar. I think he steps back and leaves it just sort of the way that it was. I think maybe all this fundamental change that he wanted to bring in, he's recognized is actually going to end the platform. So maybe it just returns to something we all recognize with $8 check marks. I don't know where it goes, but I don't know if it goes away. You might be right. I, but I, I mean, they, they've got lots and lots and lots of problems. You ever think of it the fact that Elon Musk owns a lot of um, factories that make Teslas in China? Yeah. And what happens if someone from the Chinese re- regime picks up the phone and says, we don't like all the criticism on your Twitter platform? I, I don't think it flies for him to just say, oh, I'm not the CEO of a, that anymore. <laughs> I might own it, with, but I'm, I'm not the CEO. It's amazing, and it's and it, I think it's a good lesson for all of us that the power that we put in the hands of these platforms, right, and how fundamental they are to the way things function, and what's going to happen if they go. It's a it's a really interesting conversation to have. I don't know. I don't know if anybody knows exactly where we'll be a week from now, let alone a year from now. It's no, it's it's enormous, and it, yeah, I I mean, you look at Facebook; it really is in in a rough situation. You look around at basically every social network; they've got it's. It's not smooth sailing, and yeah, I, I don't know. I, I feel like more and more people are probably pulling back yeah. from active engagement. Yeah, it's going to be interesting to see. James, good conversation. I appreciate you being here. We are getting closer and closer to Remembrance Day, November 11th, coming up on Friday, and uh, we'll have some conversations uh, leading up to it about um, Canada's war history, and uh, I'm really looking forward to our next conversation. Tim Cook is the Chief Historian and Director of Research at the Canadian War Museum, and he's written a number of uh, best-selling and award-winning books, including um, At the Sharp End, and Vimy, The Battle in the Legend, his new book is called Lifesavers and Body Snatchers, Medical Care and the Struggle for Survival in the Great War. Uh, and it details the experience of the hundreds, thousands of Canadians who served in the Canadian medical units during World War One. So I am thrilled that Tim Cook is joining us this morning. Tim, thanks so much for your time. I really appreciate you being here. Uh, great to be on the show. Um, let's just start with an idea of, you know, the medical units that did serve our soldiers in World War One. It was a massive contingent, right? Thousands of people. Yeah, about uh, half of all Canadian doctors in Canada and about a third of all nurses served overseas in the war. And, of course, this was a titanic struggle where 620,000 Canadians served, and that's from a country of 8 million so today's equivalent would be about 3.5 million or so. It's the war of the trenches. I think many of us can remember and imagine the un, uh, shocking slaughter of high explosive shells and shrapnel and machine guns firing 500 bullets a minute. 
chemical weapons, and of course, um, human flesh, uh, our soldiers, our boys going over the top, attacking the enemy, suffering horrendous casualties. And it was the doctors and the nurses who kept them, um, you know, supported uh, with the medical services, uh, repairing their broken bodies and their shattered minds, and uh, absolutely crucial to the fighting experience. You know, and I think you make a good point. We all envision the medical units as something like that, like MASH, right? You know, doing surgery on these horrific wounds and all the rest, and we'll get into that. That definitely did happen. That's part of it. But there was much more to it, right? I mean, for example, disease. That was a really, really big deal. Yeah, disease had been the great reaper of armies up to that point in human history. Almost every war had seen disease kill more than bullet and shell, even the American Civil War with 2,000 land battles, more soldiers died by disease. And so that was the great fear. And of course, the Great War, at least on the Western Front, was a great war of stalemated trenches. These armies should have dissolved into a diseased mob, but they didn't. And they didn't because of the medical services, those medical officers who demanded vaccinations, who kept um, an eye on potential diseases, um, the unglamorous work of where uh, human waste goes and latrines. Uh, watching out for diseases that would uh, waste away a soldier's body. Um, the, the medical services, they had an unglamorous role there. It's not as important or, or perhaps recognized as the surgical advances, but it was absolutely crucial in keeping the Canadian soldiers fit. And it's, it's really what our medical services continue to do to this day in, in what's called force per- protection, to make sure that our men and women uh, do, do not um, suffer the ravages of disease. Now, when we talk about, you know, combat injuries and the traumatic injuries, I mean, medical, it was interesting, you sort of lay out how at the beginning of the war, what treatment was like and what options were available and how so much was learned so quickly and so many advances were made throughout the course of the conflict and how much it improved. It did. I mean, this is this is the age before penicillin or antibiotics, and so almost every wound was infected. And this was um, this was shocking to many of these doctors who had come from Canada would not have seen these types of wounds, let alone shrapnel and high explosives, dismembering bodies, shattered uh, skulls, uh, soldiers with gaping gut wounds, uh, a femur, broken femur was almost a death sentence in 1915. And so these doctors had to learn um, on their patients, and uh, there is an evolution in care and treatment. By the end of the war, those wounds from 1915 and 16, which were absolutely lethal, they were routinely saving soldiers. And my books, as you know, and we've talked about this before, I, I rely on the letters and the diaries and the memoirs of the eyewitnesses to history. They're all gone now from the Great War, but those powerful and poignant accounts, um, that's the stuff of history for me. And so I, my books always try to lay that out. This book, there is some hard reading here mm-hmm. uh, of bodies that are torn apart and minds that are uh, traumatized and scarred, and yet this is the stuff we need to talk about. You mentioned the minds that are traumatized and scarred, and that was part of the work the medical units did too, right? It wasn't just the physical health of the soldiers. They were concerned about mental health too, as much as they could be at the time. They were. Tremendous advances here. Of course, some of your listeners will recognize the term shell shock. This was the the mental suffering of soldiers, sometimes a traumatic event, often because they were being worn down by the unending stress. And the doctors had to confront that and, and to 
deal with the patient. Sometimes it was gentle treatment, baths, rest, a Freudian talk. Sometimes it was brutal, electric shock therapy. And some of those contradictions are captured in the book, uh, the title of Lifesavers and Body Snatchers. Well, the Lifesavers, I think we understand that. The Body Snatchers is is a darker story in there about the, the learning process of these medical officers, which included, and I was quite shocked to find, both the autopsying of slain soldiers, but the removal yeah. and harvesting of their body parts. Yeah, tell us, how did you discover that, and, and, and what did you discover? What was going on? Well, it's a shocking story. I mean, I've been a military historian for 25 years. This is my 14th book, and I, I, I never knew this story. It's never been written about, but in short... In order for the medical officers to better treat the wounded soldiers, they studied the bodies of slain soldiers, and they made advances there. But it went beyond that, and the official records at the National Archives, when I found them, I spent many years looking, revealed that they were harvesting body parts, brains with bullet holes, uh, lungs that had burned out from mustard gas, uh, bone fragments. And they took these harvested body parts, sent them to a museum in London, and then, even more surprisingly, sent them back to Canada at the end of the war. About 799 body parts were sent back for a museum that was supposed to have been built in Ottawa. It never was. But the shocking part here for me is that the family members were never told about this. And now, we have to understand it in the context of the time. There's no such thing as consent at the time. And yet, this was still very shocking to me because after the war, of course, we ennobled the fallen. We talk about yeah. their sacrifice. We built thousands of memorials. We're coming up to Remembrance Day. Um, that's the period of Armistice Day, Remembrance Day, as it will be renamed in 1931. The poppy. Um, everywhere your listeners are. Today, there is a memorial to the First World War, I will bet. And so how can we have these two contradictions? Um, and I struggle with that in the book. On the one hand, it makes sense of the, the idea of learning from the dead. Mm-hmm. On the other hand, though, these were fathers and sons and brothers who served king and country. And I, I think it's, um, it's a major revelation that the book um, reveals. Yeah, I, I agree with you completely. And I, another struggle that you talk about in the book, and I, I never thought of it before reading this, was um, the one that doctors had and what they wrestled with were fixing up soldiers, were saving lives with the express purpose of endangering more lives by returning them to the fight. And ultimately, they may get killed in the end anyway. I, that must be a huge ethical struggle. It was, and, and some of the doctors talked about that, that, you know, they just, they didn't know how to feel about, yes, we're caring for these young men, we're trying to alleviate their pain and suffering, but for the ultimate goal of sending them back into the firing line, because we needed every soldier there in this, um, in this unlimited war effort. That kind of um, struggle was evident in the letters and the diaries, and it's also revealed in things like triage, when hospital units are having thousands of patients a wounded soldiers crash over them. They can't care for everyone. They had to decide sometimes who would live and who would be left to die. So some of these ethical dilemmas are, are evident as well. Now, uh, it's a struggle that they had, but most of them understood mm-hmm. 
uh, judging from their letters and diaries, they understood that the war had to be won. They understood that their role was to support the fighting forces, and they understood that um, they could do more good um, by assisting the soldiers. And so that's why I think we get about half of all Canadian doctors serving in the war. It's just amazing. Last one, and then I'll let you go. I mean, as brutal and awful as it must have been in some of those issues that we've just talked about, in the end, we we honor the sacrifice. We should honor the advancements and the amazing work that our medical units did, too, because humanity is better for it. That learning that you talk about, that's benefited medicine in so many immeasurable ways. Yeah, indeed it has. And and with half of Canadian doctors serving overseas, most surviving, they come back to Canada. They bring all of these lessons in surgical care and treatment, in blood transfusion, which is pioneered on the battlefields, in the use of the x-ray, which on the battlefields was used to look for metal hidden in, in soldiers' bodies. But after the war, assisted um, victims of tuberculosis. Um, The list goes on. Facial reconstruction. One of the key ones is a a new movement for public health. We lost 66,000 Canadians killed in the war. Well, after the war, they're talking about the need for better maternal care and for young babies because we need this new generation to help replace the losses. There are other legacies and yet, as I argue in the book, never has there been a period of such incredible growth and evolution in medical care than in those four years it's it really is a remarkable story and one that you know what we we don't hear that much about we don't talk about the medical units that much so uh, uh fantastic work and i really appreciate you joining us today tim thanks for listening today to hear any of our other interviews you can find them wherever you find your favorite podcast and if you like what you hear don't forget to rate and review us Hi, it's Shauna, and I might be a bad parent because my kids think french fries are vegetables. Hey, it's Ryan, and I might be a bad parent because I went out for wings when my wife was in the hospital after giving birth. Johnny here. I might be a bad parent because in my house, the tooth fairy gives pocket change. But we're not alone. Len emailed us and said his six-year-old daughter's Tarzan moment going from love seat to lazy boy by curtains made him more proud than any dance (laughs) recital. And Andy left his two-year-old at the rink. All right, guys, I'm sure we're not alone, like Andy's kid. For stories and confessions like this, make sure you check out our podcast. It's called Bad Parents, and it's available wherever you get your podcasts. I left a glove at the rink.